The following is a member of the Growler Media Podcast Network. Find out more at growlermedia.com. Comey Snake. Welcome to Escape from New York Minute, where we celebrate and analyze the dystopian classic one minute at a time. I am Molly Balin. And I am Eric Deutsch. And we welcome back editor slash writer Rich Drees from Film Buff Online and the Big Picture Podcast. Hey, how's it going, everybody? Well, it's going better for us than it is for Snake, I can tell you that. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Very true. (laughs) <laughs> Snake's getting a little manhandled right now. <laughs> yeah, it, it just gets his his situation just gets worse and worse and worse. Yeah. Well, we are joining at minute twenty three, and it begins with Hauk giving some context to Snake about the other countries going home after the Hartford summit, and ends with the uh, med tech asking Hauk to tell Snake something, and Hauk beginning some type of an idea before it uh, breaks off. So this is all about the Hartford Summit, which uh, we're getting a sense is is a a quite an important summit of countries, and the president doesn't make it, bad shit will ensue. So that's the other pressure that we have going into this minute for this whole situation. And the thing is also, we get a pretty big, interesting take here on it. It's actually, we now find out, it's not really the president that matters, Mm. It's the tape that matters. Hauk specifically says he's got a tape in that briefcase, and that tape has got to make it to Hartford to be played. He does not say the president has to get to Hartford. So it's interesting. It, it's really almost the president's life is kind of secondary. It's whatever is on this tape is actually that's the mm. MacGuffin of the movie. It's not the president. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Wow. Yeah, I don't think I've ever caught that before. But. It kind of speaks in the last episode, you know, I said how we're given the ticking clock for Snake. This is the minute where they raise the stakes for Snake, first with getting the tape or the president out, as well as uh, the injections. Yeah, and we find out why the 24 hours or, or 22 hours is important. Hauk says in 22 hours, China and the Soviet Union will go back home. So... Whatever this summit is, obviously they're planning on saying, we're only going to wait so long, and if we don't get what we need by this time, we're leaving. And once they leave, I guess it's uh, it must be some kind of ultimatum deadline that, you know, if we don't deal this with this now, but we're in Hartford, that's it, you can forget about it. And I found it interesting that they went with, mm-hmm. you know, the movie, of course, was filmed in 1980, and they went with the big existing communist enemies of America, China, the Soviet Union. A lot of times when you see these movies that are set in the future, They'll choose different countries to make it seem, you know, just just to try to make it seem like it is the future, you know. And he didn't say, you know, well, if you don't get there in time, you know, Finland and Sweden are going home. (laughs) (laughs) You know, when they do those world quizzes about happiness and the Scandinavian countries end up coming out on top as being like super joyful. And it'd be very interesting to think about them just turning into some sort of like villainous island and developing an arsenal in the future at some point and just, you know, wreaking havoc, like some sort of tech Vikings. But uh, no, we <laughs> stuck to uh, the the old school China and Russia and yeah. in the context of this movie, which 
interestingly enough, is is especially poignant now. Here it is, whatever, almost forty years after the fact. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy, yeah. Interestingly enough, for a, for a movie that has a lot of political overtones and, and, and you could really get deep into the politics of it, we do our best to not be a political show and, and tie it into anything current events, keep the show appealing to all sides of the <laughs> aisle and keep the show uh, evergreen as well. But yeah, interesting, you know, Russia, big part of what goes on in America these days, isn't it? Yes, yes. And, yes, and yes, indeed. <laughs> you know, this is the joy of Google and living in the, the interwebs now, but I looked up Hartford Summit just out of curiosity what would come up. And what was really interesting to me is that two things came up. The first is the Hartford Regional Tech Summit, uh, which talks about IT trends. And the other, which as we're taping, this hasn't occurred yet, but it will in a couple of weeks, and that there is a International Trade Space Summit going on in Hartford. And I got to say, it's some like Mission Impossible shit. So if you guys get a chance, you should totally look it up. Because what's really interesting about it is it's Australia and the US and UK, Canada, I think a couple other countries. But they're basically all of the major defense, space, Air Force defense folks are all coming together with contractors like Boeing and Raytheon and Lockheed Martin to talk about how you can you know, do business with the government in space. So it's kind of fascinating and a little bit frightening at the same time. But uh, the agenda's online if you want to check that out. Would this beer be someone would go if they wanted to finally put that plan in motion of shooting the laser at the moon to have like an advertisement on it? Yes. All right, sweet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So if you want to make some sweet money in space and be able to get Starbucks on the space station, this seems like an awesome thing to to get hooked up with. I don't know to the degree that it's like a Comic-Con, which most people can just... Well, now, <laughs> from your conversation, I don't know if you can even get tickets to that. It seems like you have to sacrifice a goat. I don't know to a degree that the average Joe can go to this particular trade space summit, but it seems rather rather fascinating. There are a lot of movie universes where space is corporate i mean the aliens movie universe right that's all corporations isn't it mm-hmm. it is oh yeah, yeah. corporate contracting and so not a very flattering portrayal of corporations usually right. i'd say blade runner as well yes absolutely so snake is asking how you know what, what's on the tape what, you know what, what are we talking about here and Hauk's answer is you know anything about nuclear fusion and snake's like oh, okay all right fine <laughs> I was trying to decide whether or not Hauk was implying there's going to be a nuclear war if we don't get this resolved, or if he's talking about an energy source. Mm. And the reason that I thought the energy source was a possibility is because we've got another thing here about from the draft script that didn't make it into the movie, but again, it shows where John Carpenter's mind was at. In the draft, it's not a cassette tape that's in the briefcase. It's documents from the Department of Energy, and Hauk's comment about it is he says we found an energy source totally synthetic easy to produce we're going to offer it to the soviets and chinese they'll have to take it under our conditions now that's pulled out for the shooting of the movie to leave it a little more ambiguous that he could be implying there'll be a nuclear war which Mm -hmm. again from some of the background info we've been talking about on the show we know that World War III was fought without nuclear weapons that the countries decided to use the, the nerve toxins and the gas attacks instead. And so maybe this is a, the country saying, well, we tried it that way. It's not working. So now it's time for 
global thermonuclear war. So what do you what do you both think here? Do you do you think based on what you know now from the draft script, based on how these kinds of future movies usually go, you think he's implying nuclear war or you think he's implying the energy source? I'm thinking energy source simply because this movie came out in what it was eighty one, right? Yeah. Yes. Um yep. So we're only a couple of years away from the 1979 oil crisis. Mm. So I think that might you know, be playing in the back of his mind. And it was certainly the long gas lines and stuff like that were probably still fresh in the memory of a lot of moviegoers at the time. So if he can allude to that, if control of the Middle East was the core of this conflict or, or something like that, you know, I could certainly see where... Hey, we have this new energy source. We can share it with you. This will end this war, and we won't ever have to worry about powering our cars or whatever again. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, in watching this movie, I always assumed it was just like nuclear Armageddon. But now that we're really looking at it and talking about it and given the context of the script, when you say nuclear fusion now, it kind of makes me think of, do you guys ever see the movie The Saint? Val Kilmer? Uh, Val Kilmer? Yeah, Mo- Molly. You know, based on how this out. usually goes, when you <laughs> ask me uh, <laughs> unprompted whether or not there's a movie I know or like, the answer still has never been yes. Somehow, I don't know how this keeps happening. No, I have never seen the Saint. Oh my god! <laughs> no, but I kind of love it. Oh. I love it as a running joke that <laughs> this is the only media tie that we have, and the rest of it is just a turd. So <laughs> anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> um, the saint which i enjoy is is a remake from the 60s but anyway uh welcome the saint the whole story again russia russia's super cold russia's running out of fuel and uh, elizabeth shoe comes up with this and of course she's like a hot scientist anyway <laughs> she <laughs> Just coming up with sweet equations. And uh, she comes up with cold fusion. So it's this plentiful, beautiful energy resource that basically will save everything and a warm, warm hearth for everybody in the world. Ditch fossil fuels. So then, you know, in the context of that, I kind of wonder if maybe this is more of what we're talking about, bringing it back around to this actual minute, that this is a some type of plentiful, amazing resource, and perhaps with how things are in the world, maybe not everybody wants that. Yeah, And then we move into how kind of giving a guilt trip to Snake here, in a sense, which I feel like is a little bit unwarranted, and this is, again, this is another moment of Hulk being kind of a dick, but he's like, this is just about the survival of the human race, Pliskin, something you don't give a shit about. And it's like, <laughs> well, he's not He's not said he doesn't care about people. You I mean, know, he doesn't care about the country, right? Right. He doesn't say he, he hasn't said like you know screw humanity. He's just saying screw the country. Hauk is uh, it, it, once again you know Hauk's being a dick. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even when he he gets the injection, Hauk's got this smirk. Where he's like, "That's it, Pliskin." Sort of like, a, "I know something you don't know about that injection you just took." You know, it's mm-hmm. just. You know, it, it's all it's all mm-hmm. feeding into that attitude. Yeah, I just thought it was a low blow. You know, I get the point. I mean, it's it's cool in that, again, you're making Hulk look bad and duplicitous and kind of selling that 
Pliskin's kind of a victim here, in a sense. Not like a classic, like, woe is me kind of a victim. But he is a, he is a victim of this duplicitous government oversight. And Hauk really represents that, that there's this just complete shadiness to him. You know, not even just in in how he looks, because he does look shady, just biologically, but also in in how he's expressing the situation. And as we're going to see here with the uh, the injectable in a second, mm-hmm. he, he knows he has the bully position, and he can, like you said, be a dick to to Snake just because. And I think that kind of speaks to some level of sadism in the character's personality. Absolutely, yeah. Well, now we move into uh, the injectable stage of the minute. <laughs> <laughs> and Rich, you had mentioned uh, off mic that you had some interesting background from like a comic book perspective. When I was rewatching this, because, you know, it had been a while since I had last seen the movie, you know, and I was kind of focusing in on these three minutes that I'm here for. My first thought was, and was this taken from the Suicide Squad comics or did the Suicide Squad comics? take the idea of the implanted bomb in the neck from Escape from New York. So, actually, I crowdsourced the answer in a DC Comics fan group that I'm in on Facebook. <laughs> and, and the answer came back that Carpenter, Carpenter was first with this. It wasn't until the 1987 Legends miniseries written by John Ostrander and Len Wein that... The Suicide Squad suddenly had, well, first it was bracelets that could explode and blow their hands off. Mm. And then ultimately injected it, bombs injected into the neck, which becomes a uh, plot point in um, the movie from a few years ago. Hmm. That was like one of those things like chicken and the egg, which came first on that. And that kind of sent me down my own little research rabbit hole this week. That's awesome. I didn't even think about that, but that's totally spot on. That's awesome. Thank you. You know what? I, I, I as a massive Star Wars geek, I, I can't believe that this is just occurring to me now for the first time. But that's in the Phantom Menace too. The, they talk about how all of the slaves on Tatooine have a bomb inside them, and if you try to break oh, free, to, you know, to quote Jake Lloyd, and they blow you up, boom. <laughs> so a lot of people owe John Carpenter some royalty payments, and I think is what we've decided here, right? Mm. Well, speaking of royal, speaking of payments, <laughs> this was something uh, I just happened to come across, like research-wise. But and I haven't seen this movie. I don't know if you've seen it, Rich. Have you seen Lockout? No, I have not. But I know where we're going. <laughs> <laughs> Luke Besson's Lockout, correct? Correct. Yes, and I um, didn't know this, uh, but uh, apparently there was a lawsuit, and it's pretty recent. Um, the last couple of years that. Carpenter took Basson to court and they for a lawsuit and they ruled in Carpenter's favor. But basically a French court saw that the combination of elements which gave Escape from New York its particular appearance and originality had been reproduced in Lockout, apart from certain scenes and specific details that were only present in the first film. The difference in the location of the action and the more modern character featured in Lockout was not enough to differentiate the two films. So Kind of interesting. Yeah, actually, I, I had the news report from IndieWire from back in 2015 about the, the judgment on that. Hmm. And they're saying uh, Europa Corp, which is Luc Besson's production company, had been ordered to pay 20,000 euros to Carpenter, 10,000 euros to the screenwriter, 
which would be Carpenter and Nick Castle, and then 50,000 euros to the rights owner of the movie. So 80,000 euros altogether. But kind of interesting that uh, money had to exchange hands over that. Mm -hmm. So there was a little bit of research that I ended up doing on uh, this, what I'm going to call a hypo spray. That's how I looked it up initially, because that's what I'm, I love Star Trek. So that's what I was kind of curious (laughs) about. But when I looked at hypo, I looked up hypo spray, which was kind of interesting to me, but apparently NBC's broadcast standards prohibited the use of hyperdermic syringes to inject medications in TV. They kind of developed this hypo spray idea to kind of sidestep that, which I had no idea about. But apparently there is such a thing as a jet injector. So the hypo spray is a fictionalized version of that. And so I was like, oh my gosh, I, I had no idea this was like a for reals thing. And it's such a for reals thing that it's, the concept is quite old. And the first time, the first documentation of a jet injector used to administer water or medicine under enough pressure to penetrate the skin without use of a needle goes all the way back to December 18th, 1866 in Paris. So, wow. yeah, this is a really old concept. But basically a jet injector is a type of medical injecting syringe that uses a high pressure narrow jet of injection liquid instead of a needle to penetrate the epidermis and so apparently also it's like been used for like 20 years for diabetics and at the peak jet injectors accounted for about seven percent of the injector market geek.com has a bit of an article about this so in 2012 folks at mit came up with a new jet injection method uh, the amount of drug can be varied and as how deep it can be injected. And as far as the patient is concerned, they shouldn't really feel anything other than the tip of the injector against the skin. Um, apparently, this is awesome because it's uh, a step with uh, finer control versus ones that preceded it. Um, but apparently, it's it's not supposed to be very uncomfortable at all, kind of like having a mosquito sting you or try and suck your blood out, whatever that term is. But yeah, it's uh, it's been around for quite a long time, and I, I haven't really had cause to look up jet injectors before, but I thought this was a real space-age kind of sci-fi thing, and apparently the it's not. It's been around for a really long time. It's kind of sort of like, for it's like laparoscopic surgery, but for needles, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> I never knew, and I'm a Star Trek fan as well, I never knew that was the reason why, though, they went with the hypodermic instead of an actual injectable needle because of standards and practices and i have to wonder though when did nbc change that because at some point in the 70s you know they were airing the tv show emergency Mm -hmm. with randolph mantooth um (laughs) my wife likes to say that that was her like first big crush when she was a little girl (laughs) i had older brothers who went into emergency services in terms of uh paid firefighter and paid emt and so Growing up, they were all constantly watching reruns of that. So I'm kind of familiar with the show. And I'm sure they actually had needles going in at some point. So so part of me is just, again, you know, just when did NBC change that? Might have been in the you know. 70s because this was for the original Star Trek, which was in, was it like the early 60s, yeah. like 64, I think? 64, 65. So mid 60s then. So it makes sense that by the time you rolled into the 70s, they had transitioned over to that. So yeah, interesting stuff. Eric, did you have some stuff around the 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 magic bomb injector as well? <laughs> not 
<laughs> sort of. Um, it's it's another script item that didn't make it into the movie. Um, there is a scene, and I, I think I briefly referred to it in a, in a previous episode. There is a scene that had happened earlier in the movie in the script that was not filmed between Hauk and the Doctor, in which the Doctor says... We we don't know what it is, but Hauk says is is you know is it ready or you know is the treatment ready or whatever you refer to as it's it's spoken vaguely, and the doctor says it is, but I'm against using it. It's experimental. It's never been used on a human before. I don't think this is a good idea. And Hauk says, well, you know, we're using it. Put your problems aside because we're going to use it. Mm. So it's interesting that they pulled that out. The doctor, it, he does seem, you know, it's kind of hard to say. You, you have to kind of look at it minute by minute in this movie to catch it. But there is a bit of the body language and the facial expressions of the way he carries himself. It does seem that the doctor is coming across a bit of like, eh, I don't know that I want to do this. And that gets into him then saying to Hauk, tell him. You know, clearly mm-hmm. Hauk was not going. It seemed, I, The implication is Hauk wasn't going to tell him at all, which is strange because... The guy kind of has to know he's going to die if he's not back in time, because if he's got the president and then just suddenly drops dead, what happens to the president and the briefcase? So he says, tell him, and how shoots the doctor a look like, you asshole. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I think maybe the doctor is coming from that point of the Hippocratic Oath where he's like, do no harm. Yeah. And he's like, as a doctor, I just injected two bombs into somebody. <laughs> That's really not... <laughs> <laughs> We got to give him a fighting chance here. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the doctor's a nice counterpoint here that he is, and and I totally didn't even pick this up until you know you just mentioned it now. But you're right, he does kind of need to know in order for the plot to really work to have the the pressure of going forth. So it doesn't, in a sense, make sense that he wouldn't know that he's basically running around with a bomb in his neck or bombs plural in his neck. But at the same time, I really do like that you've got a doctor here who's being a little bit more humanistic in counter to Hauk. And I think that that's necessary to make this work, too. It just can't be a jerk all the way down. There has to be some level of, like, not like compassion, but at least, uh, you know, humanity in this. Because, you know, we have to build up some empathy here towards Snake before he goes out. And I think that that's, that's effective in that way. So that's absolutely. all. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, Rich, what's your history with this movie? I mean, do you actually do you remember seeing it for the first time at all? Do you know if you did you remember if you saw it in the theater? Actually, I saw this in college, freshman or sophomore year, for the first time on VHS, horrible pan and scan, and I liked it. I was already a Carpenter fan because I from Big Trouble in Little China was actually I think the first Carpenter film I saw. Late '80s was the big home video boom so i was able to you know roughly pick up everything go back and watch assaults on precinct 13 or halloween or the fog and you know some of the other films i don't know why i just didn't get around to escape from new york until like one of those movie evenings with your friends you go to blockbuster you know rent a pile of stuff for the weekend on a friday night and you sneak a couple of sixes of beer into your dorm room and you just hang out all weekend and watch movies (laughs) it's not the carpenter film i automatically go back to Mm -hmm. Uh, that's still big trouble in little china that's you know still one of my actually it's you know just one of my favorite films of the 80s but the times that i have gone back prior to to even to this you know i always find something new something interesting something different in in it i know as i've become more familiar 
with New York as a city from, you know, visiting, you know, through the 90s and when I was in my 20s with going to rock clubs and stuff with my friends and then going on to, you know, museums and other things uh, through the city over the years and just exploring all of Manhattan. I realize Carpenter doesn't really know Manhattan as well. As <laughs> yeah, we've, Los Angeles. We've, yeah, we've touched on that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> New York doesn't play a character in this film the way it does in New in um, Ghostbusters, say. And that's just not because he didn't shoot on location. It just, you know, it just didn't have a, like a New York feel. And I'm fine with that, though, because from the initial time the movie was made, you know, it's projecting 15, 16, 17 years into the future. It's supposed to be a little different. It's supposed to be almost an alien world to what we know now. So I'm, I'm fine with that because, you know, it's one of those little alternate timelines now for me in sure. terms of that movie and that history, the way movies in the 50s tried to project what it would be like in the futuristic year of 1999 <laughs> and stuff like that. So, All right. Well, speaking of information about New York and sources of information, uh, I want to give some plugs here. Uh, a lot of the info that we give out on the podcasts and some of the photos that I've been posting in our Facebook fan page, uh, I get from various sources and that. So I want to give a shout out to some of them here. There are a couple of really cool Escape from New York fan websites out there. There's one called thenamespliskin.webs.com. And there's another one called theefnylapage.com. So if you want to check out uh, a couple of big super fans of this movie and John Carpenter check out those two websites we get some of our photos from there that i put in our in the facebook group like i said and then some of the other information that i get there is a website called the internet movie firearms database that has a lot of information on all your favorite weapons uh, from all the movies that you like to watch there's the internet movie cars database that has tons of info on any kind of motor vehicle and movie-locations.com is a great website that has information on the movie locations, as you know, Rich was saying, and, and as we've talked about before, the movie was not actually filmed in New York. It was filmed in East St. Louis. So check out those websites. Lots of cool stuff. That's where I get a lot of my information from, along with various other places. But I wanted to just specifically call out those five. So, uh, Rich, if, if I of, can, yeah, if go I ahead. Can say one thing about locations real quick, though. Yeah. Because um, I know this wasn't in my three minutes here, but that the one thing that they shot at the Statue of Liberty. Yeah. And then. Basically, the rest of the uh, the police base is in the Los Angeles River Basin. Yes, and I was really I was really impressed, you know. And I just you know, kind of thought about how well those two little things edited together so well when they're shot on opposite sides of the country. Yeah, we you actually know, and that's, we, we called that out. Yeah, what a great edit that was of the pan into like sort of the darkness for a couple of seconds, and you do not know it unless you're reading about it on the internet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I look at it and I see that wall and I expect uh, Buck Rubanzai to come rappelling over it and everybody <laughs> marched through to a jaunty pop. Well, everyone, you hear Rich uh, dropping all this knowledge. Rich, tell them where they can hear more of you dropping your knowledge. All sorts of out-of-left-field observations can be found <laughs> at, um, at filmbuffonline.com. 
also uh, on uh, the Big Picture podcast that I do with my good friend uh, Natasha Bogutsky, and that can be found. Um, we have links at Film Buff Online to that. Uh, we also have the Big Picture which would take you to all of our episodes, or you can find us on iTunes and all the other usual outlets. Awesome. And, of course, you can find us on whatever outlet you're listening to us through right now and whatever outlet that is. Uh, we would love it if you rated and reviewed us, especially if it's a good rating and a good review. You can chat with us also. <laughs> We're on Twitter, NY Minute Pod. We're on Facebook. Hang out with us in Brain's Library. That's the Escape from New York Minute Hangout. And so, until tomorrow, be on time, stay out of those sewers, and we'll meet you on the other side of the wall. Mm-hmm.